It's so good to be together. How's everybody doing? Awesome. We're going to go straight to scripture. We're going to pick up where we've left off. Um, but before we do so, I want to acknowledge that it is Father's Day. Could we give it, give a hand to all the fathers that are in the room, the fathers in our lives. Today's a special day and, and Similar to Mother's Day, I recognize that we all kind of enter into a day like today in different spaces. And so for some of us, we look forward to today because we get to be celebrated by our own kids or celebrate the fathers in our lives. And we're so grateful and we cherish them. And it's an opportunity that we relish in just communicating our love. But for some of us, today can be a heavy day, a difficult day, because perhaps you didn't have a great relationship with your dad if you had one at all. Um, or maybe you long to be a dad and you're not there uh, for various reasons. And so we could just find ourselves in a difficult space. And so particularly for men um, who often we can find it quite difficult to own our emotions and be present with them and admit where we're at, whether it's joy or kind of some sadness. I want to just recognize for the men um, that today, however you're coming into this day, that we see you, we love you, we appreciate you. We need you to be everything that God has created you to be. And when you show up, it matters. Your presence is felt. Your gifts are so amazing. And as a church, we want to celebrate you and thank you for all that you do. And so could we give it up again for the fathers in the room, fathers in our lives. We love you. So grateful for you. Romans chapter 3, verse 1 to 20, says this. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words And prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying... Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we get to come together under your name, under your authority, to worship, to study your scripture, to encounter your presence. And we pray for understanding hearts, open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your truth. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him to each and every one of us. And Father, we thank you for the incredible love that you meet us in. We pray you'd glorify yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. How many, uh, how many have lived in New York for more than 10 years? Raise your hand. All right. Okay, okay, okay. How many for more than 15 years? All right, the herd is thinning out a little bit. Um, how many more than 20 years? Okay, okay, there's, there's some strong New York energy in this room. Um, if you're old enough and been here long enough, perhaps you remember a time when if you wanted to grab a cab in the city, there was only one show in town. It was the yellow cab. And that was a mixed experience for many, um, to say it lightly. There was a feature about those cabs that um, is actually quite fascinating. In order to drive those cabs legally, you had to purchase what was called a medallion. And if you ever noticed, you'd come up by on a cab, they would have like this medallion on the hood, you know, that medallion would run sometimes upwards of over a million dollars. And that's what gave you the right to drive a cab in New York City. And so because of such a high cost to actually operate this business, it's essentially your, your business is running this cab, sometimes people would pitch together their monies, a couple families would come together, buy a medallion, and that cab would run 24 hours. Basically, different people would have shifts. Sometimes they would rent the cab out to somebody and get a fee for them being able to use the cab, all to try to recoup this massive investment until Uber. When Uber came around, overnight, this thing became worthless. Because now you didn't need that in order to drive a cab. And it was quite sad and tragic that some people actually took their lives when they realized that all this money, all this investment that they put in was for absolutely nothing. That now someone who didn't pay upwards of a million dollars or more can actually get in their car and pick people up, drop people off, do what they were trying to do. If you could imagine what that might feel like to work your entire life, to put all your confidence, your hope, and then overnight the rug is taken from under you, and it's worth nothing, then you might be getting a sense of what it might feel like if you are a Jewish believer in Jesus, hearing the gospel and being told all your ethical behavior, all your attempts to obey the law are worthless. That's a hard pill to swallow, especially when you see this contrast of Jew and Gentile, Gentile is non-Jew, um, these big terms where you say, wait, we have spent our whole lives trying to be faithful to God's promises, to his instruction, and now you're telling us that it's worth nothing? 
It's, it's a hard pill to swallow. And so the first couple of verses of chapter 3, Paul is kind of arguing more the nuances of how people are wrestling with this idea of, wait, if obedience doesn't matter, then maybe I should just be unfaithful. And, and you know, if, if me being unfaithful to God's law, God could still be glorified, so why even obey? And, and so there's, there's ongoing, these layers of argument that's happening here. And Paul is really addressing something that we need to hear and let it sink into our hearts. That apart from Jesus, there's no security. We can't put our trust, our confidence in anything and think that that thing is going to justify us. That thing is going to save us, even moral behavior. That it's only Jesus that can save us. Nothing that we do or nothing that we could ever amass, accomplish, earn, put together can save us. Now, that is incredibly good news if you see yourself as never meeting the standard of always falling short, if you hear that God saves you in such a way that your deficiencies are not held against you, you're like, yes. But if you think you actually hit the mark, if you think that you actually can earn this with a little bit more time, a little bit more effort, you can actually even it out and you can actually be deserving of it, it is not the best news to hear that nothing you do could actually create any kind of advantage for yourself. If you're faithful, if you're trying to obey, if you're trying to justify yourself through your effort, this can be hard, difficult, good news to hear that none of us have a loophole. That none of us are exempt from the salvation that Jesus offers us. I had to officiate a funeral this past week and it was in my old neighborhood with some family and friends and saw people I haven't seen in a bit. And it's always such a, like, a crazy experience for me coming back into these spaces because um, I grew up in this neighborhood. This was Sunset Park, Brooklyn. This is before it became you know, a really nice neighborhood and people, you know, before people were jogging in the streets and no one chasing them, you know, like <laughs> it, uh, before cupcake shops and Vespas. Um, it was the hood. It was really crazy. And um, funerals in that neighborhood are always, they're an event. Um, there was so much love, really great moments. But then there was a few folks that I'm just like, it broke my heart because they all respect. They remember me before I became a Christian. And they remember how I lived. And because and, I, was, I was with them in the streets. We were running doing whatever we were doing, um, all sorts of craziness and madness. That's for another time, another, another sermon. Um, and so there's this respect of like, oh, I remember Chris, and it's good to see that you're still following God. But then there's this other reaction where it's just like, oh, it's, it's cute that you, you got that little faith thing. That's nice that you, know, that you let Jesus fix you up. That's cool, but I'm good. I realize that exists everywhere. It doesn't just show up in the hood. It doesn't just show up in those moments. It shows up in professional spaces. It shows up in all corners of society where folks can be like, oh, it, you, you worship on Sunday. Oh, that's nice. Good for you. I, I respect that. That's really cool. 
individual choice that you make that I never want to invade my life at all. Keep that over there. I respect that from afar. It, it's, there's a way of, when we don't understand the fact that what Jesus has done is for all of us, that we all need it, there can be this air of like distance that we can think we have from what he's done. Where that, oh, that's for some people. That's for those who can't earn this, who are not better adjusted, who have these various issues. It's cool that Jesus could be this nice crutch to them. And when that attitude is there, we're clearly not understanding that what the good news of Jesus is not just for some select few that are extra broken or can't figure it out. Or those are the folks that those are for the folks that didn't get into the best schools or they don't have the best jobs. And man, it's so good that they have Jesus to help them cope through life, you know, because they can't be awesome like me. You know, like it, when that attitude is there, we're clearly not understanding that nothing saves us apart from Jesus. And that what he did was not some private thing for just some people that are really needy. Actually, if morally good people, honest people, people who are trying to live this out, faithful Jews, if the gospel is saying, you need what Jesus is offering you just as much, then none of us have an advantage. And that's what Paul is trying to say when he lands on this incredibly powerful statement, something that the scriptures uniquely offer to us in our world that struggles so much to actually figure out what's broken with us. We throw so much money and studies and resources trying to figure out how to cope and how to get better and how to navigate through life. And all we're doing, we're spending a lot of energy fighting this description that God has about us when verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not, all. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All are under sin. That's how God describes us. All are under sin. He says both Jew and Gentile, all are under sin. So therefore, no one has any advantage at all. This is especially true and needed for us that are trying to obey, that are trying to do the right thing, that are trying to be moral and God-abiding, to realize that God says all are under sin, which means for those who are trying to obey and those who are not, sin is influencing both. That is not the easiest pill to swallow. That sin can just as much influence morally good behavior. That you and I could be morally good, 
yet be driven by sinful motivations. So if that's the case, then you and I could never rest on our morality and our goodness. You and I could never walk around saying, I'm a good person. Because according, so I don't really need Jesus to the degree that you say I do. Because according to this, if you and I can be influenced by sin while we're morally good, then we all need Jesus, even if we're morally good or not. There's a troubling statistic I came across. And the best way to explain the statistic is this. Imagine there's a couple, and in this relationship, the husband is struggling with drugs and battling through an addiction. And so in order for the marriage to continue at all, this poor wife is having to dig in deep every single day because just the battle of addiction is awful. It's painful if you've ever seen it before your eyes. And so this woman is showing up. She's going the extra mile. She's doing everything she can in order to help her husband through it. And here's the the statistic. Overwhelmingly, those marriages will end in divorce. You know when? When the husband kicks the drugs. Think about that. Wait, you were loving me this whole time. You were supporting me. You were getting me through. And isn't this what you wanted for me to get over the addiction? I'm finally over the addiction. You were showing up, loving, being gracious, going the extra mile. I thought this is what you wanted. And then at that moment, you could realize that good things could be done for bad motives. Because it actually wasn't being done for the husband's freedom. It was being done for other broken reasons. When Paul says we're all under sin, if you're struggling with this, and I know it can be a lot to process when you think about what that actually means. Because look at how he describes. He says, there's no one who does good. Not even one. you're like, I don't know about that. I do good. I'm a good person. I know a lot of good people. Or Paul says, there's no one who seeks for God. You're like, man, look at me. I showed up today. I'm seeking for God. What does that mean? Paul is saying some really intense things. I'm not sure I'm ready to, like, accept this idea that all are under sin. What he's trying to get through to us, that even when we're doing things that outwardly look moral and good, inwardly we're often not doing it for God-glorifying reasons. So when he says no one seeks God, he's not saying that people don't pray, that people don't look to God for help. But what he's getting at is, are you seeking God for God's sake? Or are we seeking God for our sake, for our motives? Are we seeking God to get something from him? Or are we seeking God for him? When it says that we're all under sin, we have to take into consideration how the scriptures describe sin. And it's a very loaded, complex word. And it's actually not an easy word that our society now wants to hear. In fact, I have some pastor friends that are like, you still use that word? I'm like, yeah, as long as it's in the Bible, I'm going to still use it. And so, um, because it's in the scriptures, it communicates something that we got to process. And so sin, it doesn't just describe moral decisions, It describes so much more, this word. One definition that we see in the scriptures is this idea of missing the mark. And so imagine uh, you're somewhere doing archery. You know, something very New York, right? Um, I'm sure you all grew up doing archery in your backyards. 
killing squirrels. Um, so imagine, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And so imagine you shoot the arrow and you're trying to hit the target and you clearly miss. You're nowhere near the vicinity. And so sin is this idea of God has this target that he calls us to aim for, which is his glory, to honor him, to lead to others flourishing and ourselves flourishing. And our best attempts, we miss it. But it goes deeper. There's one definition of sin that actually describes as if your soul has been bent or curved in a certain way. It's like you lean, you, there's a, a proclivity. If left to yourself, have you ever driven a car that needs to get like the wheels aligned and you let go of the steering wheel for a second, like, oh, I'm in the next lane. Like it's, it, it will not drive straight if left to itself. That's kind of with this other idea of sin, our, our hearts just bend toward that way. But before we get even deeper and think about sin only in personal, um, individual ways, the scriptures describe sin in such a way that it actually pervades society itself, that you find it entangled in the very structures and the ways that we order life. And so there's times where you could actually accurately say our society, that system, that structure is sinful. It's not honoring God. It's, it's oppressing people. It's, it's erasing the image of God from people. It's acting in a way that's contrary to God. You remember that scene in The Matrix where Lawrence Fishburne is trying to describe The Matrix to Keanu Reeves? And he's saying it's in the air. It's, it's when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It's, he's trying to describe this idea that it's everywhere. It's infiltrated everything. When scriptures say that we are all under sin, it's saying that it's pervasive. It shows up in our hearts. It shows up in our thoughts. It shows up in our decisions, but it shows up in our society. We're all complicit. We're all involved in it. It's that pervasive. Augustine, one of the great theologians of the church, who was African, by the way, if you think all theologians were white and European, that's not accurate. Um, Augustine, he describes sin in this way. He described it as your soul and your heart being turned inward. When you think about that, that actually gives you a really powerful thing to process. Because you say, I'm a good person. I bet you are. I know good people. I bet you do but are their hearts turned inward? Yes, they are. At the end, we still vie for number one. We still push for what's best for us. We're out for what is good for us, often at the expense of others. And even if we don't violate anybody else's space or, or, or get over on anybody in order for us to come out on top, what the scriptures are telling us up until this point is that because one of the ways that sin impacts us is that we are continuously, intentionally forgetting about God. We're replacing him. We're denying his existence in all creation. That's what Romans 1 tells us. 
We, we shut down his voice in our conscience. And so when it says we're all under sin, it's describing something very deep. And so even if you say, man, I, I'm, I struggle with this, if you could just accept for a moment that maybe your heart is 1% bent away from God and you feel better than 99% of the other people, right? You're like, man, those 2%, 10% people, oh, that's terrible. My heart is only 1% bent toward God, bent away from God. Over time, if you and I start walking parallel to each other and you're just like 1% off, in the beginning, we won't tell the difference. But give us time and all of a sudden you'll be over there and we'll be over here and you'll realize 1% off as much as we might diminish that, makes a huge difference. And so even if your heart is 1% off because of sin, that means that over time, your heart is growing more and more distant from God. Why are we belaboring this? Some of you are like, man, I woke up and came to church for this? Like, this, this is depressing. That, like, you, you wanted something happier, it's like, man, you're going to start reading the verses before you come? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> I'll show up. Yes. That's, I will tolerate God speaking to me about that. Here's why this is so important. Because in the coming verses, by the time God begins to explicitly share his cure, the medicine, the healing that he offers us in Jesus, it will do us no good if you and I think we don't have the disease. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, what's wrong with you? He said, perfectly fine. He said, why are you here? Just wanted your company. That doesn't make sense. I know. There must be some pain you have. Some, where does it hurt? It doesn't. That doctor can't help you in any way. They can't prescribe what you would need if you're in denial of your own pain, your own symptoms. And I think because we don't fully own what the scriptures are saying, when we look at the cross, when we look at the resurrection, we're like, man, that's amazing, but I don't know if all that was necessary. Like, I'm not sure that was for me. I don't think I really need, that's for the extra, really bad, broken people. But yet, at this point, we have been brought through a place to realize that this is just as much for the morally good, upstanding people. This is for you who never lie on your taxes. This is for you who are never late, who always do right by others. Some of you are chuckling. I'm going to check your tax returns. <laughs> Uh, it, this is for us that are always trying to be generous and kind, letting us know we're all under sin. And so if we don't come to that conclusion, by the time God offers us salvation in Jesus, we will think, that's cute, but I don't really need that. But if you're coming to terms... If you're kind of allowing God to turn the corner in your own heart and realize, 
actually we're all under sin. That it's possible for me to obey, yet obey from a place of sinful motivation. That I actually can't put confidence in my obedience. That at the end of the day, only Jesus can save all of us. And this is good news. If you're finally getting to that place in your heart, then what's amazing about God's offer to us in Jesus is that God has the capacity to make our hearts brand new. We talked about this last week. We talked about this idea that Jesus gives us a new heart. He replaces our heart of stone for a heart of flesh, a heart that's sensitive to him, and and a heart that allows him to lead us and to obey, and we obey from within. Jesus is able to restructure, make alive, make new our hearts, and one of the ways that you can tell that your heart is being made new by Jesus is that you find within your heart what is described as being absent from the heart of someone who's under sin. Look at what it says about those that are under sin who have not yet experienced the transforming work of Jesus. Verse 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. One of the descriptions of folks that are under sin that have not experienced the salvation of Jesus is that there is an absence of the fear of God in their life. But the opposite is true. One of the evidences that God is making your heart new and that you're experiencing the salvation of Jesus is that you find within you a growing sense of reverence and honor and respect toward God. Here's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus is offering us more than just like rules and regulations. Actually, it offers us an invitation for a brand new heart. And this new heart, one of the features of it is that it grows in fear and reverence and respect for God. And that, not rules, not regulations, that becomes your anchor. That becomes the thing that tethers you to God because you live in this constant growing sense of reverence for God, that you want to be near him. You want to respect and honor what he's done for us in Christ. Growing in the fear of God. This is God's plan. That when we put our faith in Jesus, he gives us a brand new heart. And one of the attributes, the characteristics of this new heart he puts in us is that it grows in its reverence and honor toward him. It lives continuously under the weight of his greatness, not ours. When we're honest about our capacity, our proclivity, our default tendency to drift from God, to forget him, to replace him, and we put our faith in Jesus, we begin to see how helpful, how necessary, how valuable a growing fear of God actually is. 
You know, have you ever seen parents that um, essentially have like a leash on their kid? You ever seen that phenomenon? Um, I've seen that a couple times, and I thought it was weird until we had Michael. Um, <laughs> and realized, man, that little kid leash would be really, really helpful. Because there was a few times you almost darted out into the street, um, crossing guards, like saved them a couple times. And when you think about it spiritually, we have the same tendency with God. Our tendency is to run, to drift, to stay back, to get distracted. And so how helpful would it be for something to tether us to him, to keep us close to him? And that thing is the fear of God, that we live with this constant sense of, I want to honor you. I respect what you've done. I appreciate your sacrifice is not lost on me. I count the cost of what you've done, and it's so moved me and so changed me that I want to be near you. I want to live for you. I want to live after you. How necessary and important it is to grow in the fear of God. And how impossible it is to grow in a healthy fear of God without having a clear understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and a clear understanding of what it means for us to be under sin. When those two things really get deep in our hearts and we see the immensity of what has been done for us in Jesus, then you and I have the capacity to grow in a sense of the fear of God, a respect and honor. One of my favorite moments in a movie ever is the moment in Saving Private Ryan at the very end. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> Private Ryan, him and his brothers were enlisted World War II and he had a bunch of brothers. I think all of them were older than him. He was the youngest, four brothers. And they all tragically died in the war. So now he is the last remaining child of this family. And they're trying to save him so he can go back home so that this mother doesn't remain childless in this world. So they send a small little battalion to go and find him save him so that he can go back home. Sadly, by the end of the movie, the vast majority of the men that were sent to save him die in the process. He lives because they died for him. They laid down their life for him. Fast forward at the end of the movie is this really moving moment. He is an old grandfather at this point, and he's surrounded by kids and grandkids like, a whole tribe of them, and they actually go visit the cemetery where many of the men that died to let him live were buried. And there's this moment where he turns to his wife and he asks her, was I a good man? And she's like kind of puzzled, and he's needing her to say it out loud in that moment, almost as if like, I need to hear you say this in front of them 
where they're buried so they could know their sacrifice meant something, that I honored their sacrifice in the way that I lived. It's an incredibly moving moment, especially when we translate it to what it means for us to look at what Jesus has done on our behalf and say, for the rest of my life, I want to live in such a way that I honor, that I respect, that I glory in, that I put my confidence in, that I allow my affections to be changed by what you have done. God wants us to grow in the fear of God. One of the ways you know that you need to grow in the fear of God or that your fear of him has waned is if you find yourself having a lackadaisical attitude towards sin or, more importantly, what Jesus has done doesn't really move you. It becomes blasé. Typically, when those things are showing up in our hearts, the fear of God is waning, and we need it to be renewed. Can I be honest with you? Um, as a pastor, but even more so, I've been following Jesus since September 26, 1994. There are moments where I feel zero motivation to study scripture, zero motivation to like try to really love people, grow tired, grow impatient. There are times where I wanna give up where I was like, man, I have such an easier life doing X, Y, and Z. Like I dream about like driving a bread truck. <laughs> what a great life that would be, you know? It would be amazing. Nobody would be unhappy. Nobody sends angry emails to the bread truck delivery guy. Nobody says, I can't believe you, you have that stance. Oh, he's just delivering bread, you know? You know what consistently has brought me back is when I pause long enough to consider the sacrifice of Jesus and I consider it prayerfully, worshipfully, some, often in silence, and I consider it long enough until I begin to feel my heart shift, where I begin to feel my heart going from, I have to do this to, I get to do this. Where I feel my heart shift from, ah, oh, this, this situation again, this person again, to, Lord, this is your child. You love them, and I want to love them the way you love them. If you're here today, and you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you recognize there's a, uh, like a waning sense of the fear of God, today, God would want to renew that kind of throw a log in the fire, rekindle it, and get you to a place where it can be renewed. But one of the first things that has to happen is you have to accept his diagnosis of you. You have to accept the fact that your moral efforts and mine won't be enough, that we can't be good enough to figure this out on our own, we can't save ourselves, that we're all under sin, that even our best efforts, our moral efforts, can still be infected and infused and influenced by sin. And so, therefore, we need his salvation, every bit of it that he offers us. 
And one of the ways that you and I could recognize that this is starting to really go deeper into our souls is found in these words of this verse. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You know you're, getting, you're starting to get this and it's starting to influence and, and penetrate your soul is when you find yourself silenced by the gospel where God shuts your mouth, you're speechless, where you have no defense, where you accept his diagnosis with no caveats, no loopholes, no exemptions. Not so long ago, I was having this moment with my 14-year-old daughter where she uh, was offering the lamest apology I've ever heard in my life. And so it was... I'm sorry, but it's not that big of a deal. No, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry, but it didn't, it, Luke, it didn't bother Luke. You know that, right? No, no, no. And just kept going back and forth. Finally, where it got to the place, she was like, but, but you're, you're, you're not believing that I'm sincere. I'm like, your words are letting me know you're not sincere. I'm not judging your heart. I don't know what's in your heart. But if you keep saying, I'm sorry, but then you're not really sorry yet. Some of the married couples in the room are feeling real good right now. You're like, let's, let's discuss this part of the sermon later, okay? And so, <laughs> say sorry, that's it. No but, no exemptions, no excuses. How often we find ourselves kind of combating back with God and our mouths aren't silenced by the gospel. It's like, all right, we're all under sin, but maybe not that much. Or not me, not all the time. Or I don't really need all that Jesus is offering. That's really for those people. Or, you know, if I could just keep working at this, I could accomplish what God is trying to offer me on my own. I could do it on my own. We keep arguing our case before God. That shows we still haven't died to our need of defensiveness and self-justification. But could you imagine how liberating it would be for you and I to come to a place where God describes us to ourselves and we say, yes, that's me. Thank you for being honest. I'm the person you just described. I'm the one that needs that much help. I'm that broken person. When you died, you definitely died for me. I own it. I receive it. God wants to bring us to that place, all of us, where in our relationship with him, we come to a place where we appreciate how he describes us to ourselves so that we could appreciate the medicine, the cure, the healing he offers us through his son. You won't appreciate it if you're still, God, I'm sorry, but God, that's me, but 
if you're still justifying, still being defensive, rather than saying, I am under sin. And by admitting that, owning that, it makes me a ripe recipient for the grace that's uniquely offered in Jesus. As we continue to journey in Romans, salvation is going to be unpacked for us gloriously. My prayer is that every single one of us would be able to fully unwrap this gift and receive it. But in order to do that, we have to be fully persuaded, our mouths shut and say, mm-hmm, I am how you describe me. I need what you're offering and I can't accomplish this apart from you. Could I invite us to stand at this time and as the worship team comes forward, as we close in prayer, the prayer team is going to be in the back, to my right, to your left, and at any given moment, as we begin to sing and worship and pray in these next few moments, if you need prayer, if you'd like prayer for the words that were offered earlier, or just you need prayer for anything in particular, or something the message might have stirred for you, you can simply just step out of your seat and go to the back, and they would love to pray for you. And so at this time, could I invite us, if you feel comfortable doing so, could we just close our eyes for a moment? And if you feel comfortable, could we just open our hands, our palms, facing toward heaven, just in this posture of receiving, of surrendering. And perhaps right now this is a moment where some of us, our meeting with God is around, Lord, I, I don't fear you. Or I've lost a sense of fear and wonder and honor. Oh God, restore it. Maybe today there's for some of us, the way we're going to meet God in these next few moments is to recognize that if we're all under sin, that even the good that we tend to be proud of and boast in is of no advantage because it can be done through the influence of sin just as much as outwardly sinful things. And so there's no advantage, there's no pride, there's no security that we could stand on. And so perhaps it's that humility, that posture is how the Lord is meeting you right now. Jesus, meet us. Lord, deliver us from self-justification, from denial, from the ways we resist your description of us. And help us to come to a place of honesty with you. Lord, shut our mouths before you as we wonder and perceive the glory of the cross. Let's worship him in these next few moments.